King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star. Throughout all eternity, I'm going to praise Him. And forevermore, I will reign with them. All hail King Jesus, all hail Emmanuel, King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star. Throughout all eternity, I'm going to praise Him. And forevermore, I will reign with Him. All King Jesus, all Emmanuel, King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star, throughout all eternity, I'm going to praise Him, and forevermore I will reign with them, and forevermore I will reign with them. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, what you have promised, you have brought forth. And what you have promised, you will continue to bring forth. And as we enter into a Christmas season, let us be reminded of your fulfilling work, that the hope of the nations is brought to fruition in Christ, that our longing for salvation is realized in you, that as we live and as we celebrate, Lord, that we would live for and celebrate to your glory, knowing the great work you have done and the great work you are continuing to do, building towards your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
I will lend to his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will lend to his courts with his praise. I will say this a day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will lend to his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will lend to his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will lend to his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will lend to his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. All right, let's see. Oy, we got a list today. So let's see if I can run everybody down. See, uh, Daryl and Ginger are home because Ginger is sick. She's had the stuffy sore throat thing going around. Um, Bill basically has it. <laughs> uh, Sam has it, so that's Sam and Shelby aren't here. Uh, Connor has it. Um, Becca has strep, so we're going to blame Becca for all of this. She had it first, right? <laughs> that's our story, and we're sticking to it. If anybody else is sick, don't share. It's, it just falls into one of those things. That, and, oh, good news. I, see, nobody's sitting in the same places. Lou is healthy. Lou is back. Yay! So, <laughs> and Elena's asthma is behaving, so she's here this morning. So, I had you on the list just in case. <laughs> so, it just, I, I joked, and we said, when we say tis the season, <laughs> there you go. It's always something. I always joke that it's tis the season for, our, for illness stuff. It just, everything feels like such a bigger deal right now when this is normally what would happen to us this time of year. And I'm going to stop. I, I see a hand. Oh, so Teresa's stepdad is on hospice now? Oh. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah. Okay, so keep Teresa's family in your prayers, please. 
But um, I was about to say, we, we go through this every year. Strep goes around, colds go around, flu goes around. It seems like it's a worse deal this year because everybody's been telling you for nine months, we're all going to die. So <coughs> wash your hands. Uh, stay safe. If you've got a fever, stay home. You know, simple stuff. You know, stuff we've done since the beginning of time. Let's just keep doing that. Sound like a good plan? All right. There you go. Um, read your bulletin. Everything is in there. We'll get all the Pregnancy Care Center for our missions information. I'm going to hopefully get that out there this week. I can kind of get my brain back into function. Part of me, I think, last week was still driving. I drove back and forth from here to North Carolina four times in two weeks. So I think part of me last Sunday was still in the car somewhere. So I think this week will be closer to a normal week. Uh, trivia. We've got the last two on the survey. Kind of sad. Uh, you can see last week's stuff in there. Uh, this week's, I, t I told you last week we're getting down to the social and simple stuff. So there, there are no more gray areas, and that continues for the last ones. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. True or false? That's an easy one, right? Mm -hmm. You say that. <laughs> For those that attend evangelical churches once a week, 96% of the people said that statement was true. You know what that means, though. 4% said it was false. Mm -hmm. Again, those are the people that attend Bible-believing churches once a week. That terrifies me. <laughs> Apparently. They're like me. They sleep through the sermon. Um, okay, some of you actually got that. Yay! <laughs> uh, if you remove church attendance and you remove denominational affiliation, prepare yourself. 65% of the people said that statement was true, and 35% said that statement was false. That is scary, and I can't even, there is no good way to spin that. The, the giant takeaway from this entire survey for me has been whenever they say Christians think or Christians believe, just start shaking your head because Christians don't believe Christian stuff when it comes to how we identify. And the vast majority of people that we run across on a daily basis who say, I am a Christian, I go to such and such church, wonder. Ask more questions. It's worth it. Um, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's, it's, like a, it's like a different way of asking the first one, right? Of those that attend evangelical churches once a week, 90% said that was true. 10% <laughs> said that was false. If you remove church attendance or denominational affiliation, 60% of the people said that that statement was true, and 40% said that statement was false. So, now, again, my question was, and I wasn't picking when I said this last week, I'm not picking when I said this this week, I wonder how many of the respondents are Roman Catholic, because the, uh, the Roman Catholic theology has a place in it for what they call the anonymous Christian. See, you're a Christian, but you just don't know it yet. Uh, don't ask me how that's supposed to work. Uh, and that's getting worse and worse every year with their current pope. Because you remember the joke for years, like you, somebody asked you, like, hey, do you want dessert? Well, is the pope Catholic? That's not a good line anymore because there's Roman Catholics looking going, is the pope Catholic? We're not entirely sure. So, and I'm, and I'm only half kidding. So just wait. He had something last week. Um, 
he's going to have something else as Christmas gets closer. I mean, to case in point, this is this is this is a complete aside. It has nothing to do with anything. But to when we when I joke that is the Pope, Pope Catholic, it was either beginning of this year or the end of last year where he came out with something basically. The official now teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that there is no valid reason ever for the death penalty. Which I understand the sentiment. I'm not a huge person who trusts my government all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, if you told me that I don't trust the government, therefore I don't think they should be executing people, I would say, I'm listening, I understand your argument. I'm, I'm still not on the side completely, but I get the point. But you can't say that there is no valid reason to ever have the death penalty and read your Old Testament. Because God does what? God enacts the death penalty because he's God, and that is his right, and that is what justice demands. So you can't actually read your Old Testament, believe in what, it, what it's teaching and what it says, and then say there is no valid reason for the death penalty ever. I mean, literally one of the cornerstone verses that children we learn in Sunday school is the wages of sin is death. That's a death penalty, isn't it? That's capital punishment in action. Because you have violated the commands of a holy God, he will bring about justice either upon you directly or upon Christ at the cross. That is the death penalty in action. So you can't sit there and be believing Christians and say there's no valid reason to ever have the death penalty because we live in a, roar, in a world ruled by God. So anyway, that's a complete different aside. I'm going to get back on my <laughs> Um Starting next week, we'll get back to the, uh, the old school trivia because we've gone through the entire survey again. Uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway partnered together to figure this all out. So if you want to see all of the stuff, and you want to go through them all again, go to their website. I especially recommend the Ligonier website because you can do all the different qualifications. You can see just what Baptists believe, just what Catholics did, just what evangelicals. You can do all of that stuff on the website. Have a blast. It will depress you as to the state of what church-going church people actually believe. Right, is there anything else I'm forgetting? Going once, going twice, then I will get out of the way so we can stand and sing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent. Disperse the gloomy cloud of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. 
to us friends path of knowledge and calls us in our ways to go rejoice rejoice emmanuel shall come to thee O come, desire of nation, peoples in one heart and mind, bid be strife and cease. Build all the world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, still come to be Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, still come to be Israel. Shout a trumpet sound. 
talking about that time of year you should you should be me going to a store now i've mentioned this before i don't go anywhere without water and by anywhere i mean anywhere because if i do go without water for more than a few minutes that starts and you want to talk about fun go to the store have your throat dry out and start coughing and everybody starts looking at you like i didn't do it i'm, I'm sorry it's okay yeah go to the doctor well do you have any you know you have any symptoms? You have dry throats or cough or sinus problems? Yes. How long have you had those? Since about 2012? They just kind of look at you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, 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 just daily, you know. When do you think they're going to go away? When I die. <sighs> Tis the joy. I take an allergy pill every day for my itching. If I don't, I don't know what I've become allergic to, but as an adult, I started itching. Required to do that. Um, so if I, I, I tried to wean off of them a couple of months ago and took it on a Sunday morning and then didn't take one again by Wednesday. I'm sitting there going, I'm going to pull my own skin off. So the only thing, only the uh, side benefit is by taking them about every other day, I, I, I have minimum, minimal sinus problems on a regular basis. So I can't imagine what I'd be like if I didn't take them on that regular basis. So enough about my fun sinuses. How about yours? No, I'm kidding. Um, as you can tell by our glorious decorations, we, we got a little bit of stuff up yesterday. There's a, there's a tree and stuff. And the Advent wreath, which this is new this year. I'm hoping these candles will last till about 2040. Because if you didn't notice, this is what we were using last year and the year before. And this is what we have now. So, and considering how little the, the, the big white Christ candle in the middle gets lit, I'm thinking my grandkids will be lighting that one and we're good. <laughs> All right. It is Christmas time. No, I don't have a major problem with that. I know there is some historical issue with using the term Christmas, and we should be using Advent and all of that, and I just, I fall into the bad habit, so I'm, I'm okay with that. We divide Advent for Sundays. Hope, love, joy, peace, hence the candles. If you want to see the white one late, you got to come to the Christmas Eve service. Them's the rules. I didn't write them. I just followed them, okay? Now, question of the day, which is really, really simple. To where shall we look for hope? I say, give me the Sunday school answer. There you go. I mean, this is if you learn nothing else, when you don't know what the answer is and you're in Sunday school, what do you yell? There you go. That's how this works. So this one, this time you are correct. We should be looking to Christ for our hope. Now, fun little question. To where did the people before Christ's incarnation, so before the birth, before the Son of God took on flesh and became a man, before all of that, where did people look to, for hope? You ready? You ready? The same answer. The exact same answer. And I can prove it, too. <laughs> we will do that in Isaiah chapter 9, but let us be reminded of a few things. What is the one thing we don't want to do when it comes to a chapter of Scripture? We never, ever, ever read what? One verse. Never, ever, ever read one verse. And don't just airdrop into a verse or a chapter, but know about where in Scripture you are. You cannot know where you are going in the passage if you do not know where you have been. Exactly. So, Isaiah chapter 6. There's a little bit of history for you. Isaiah is commissioned, but he is also warned that the people will be obstinate both in their nature and in their working. That's an important distinction. They're not just obstinate in how they think and what they do. They're obstinate in both manners. Because once again, what you do is a product of how you think. They go hand in hand. Chapter 7 of Isaiah. Victory for Judah is proclaimed. A birth is promised. Who shall be called what? Who knows your other Christmas verses from Isaiah? His name shall be called... Emmanuel, which means, nah, close, God with us. Remember, Emmanuel, that's why when you get to the New Testament, you ever have somebody ask you this? Well, how come his name is Jesus and it's not Emmanuel? 
because Emmanuel is a type. It's a description. It is not the name. It is a description. It literally means God with us. Who is Jesus? He is God with us. So this Emmanuel is promised, but also difficulty and tribulation for the nation is promised in Isaiah chapter 7. You then get to Isaiah chapter 8. Samaria and Damascus, the enemies of Judah, are promised that they will be ruined and destroyed, and joy and deliverance is promised to the remnant of the nation. And that's important, because when I say remnant of the nation, what in the world am I talking about? I'm talking about some of the things we'll cover this morning, such as who will see the salvation of Israel. Is not all Israel to be saved? Hmm. See, this is one of those things you, you have to remember, because Paul uses these examples, and we're going to cover some of them this morning. Was all of Israel delivered from Egypt in the Exodus? <laughs> Vern's like, I, I think I'm thinking with you. I would agree with you. Was all of the delivered Israel out of Egypt delivered safely to God? No, and you know they're not. The, some, some were fall, some were fallen in the desert. Some were swallowed up in the rebellion of, um, the name just went right out of my head. Yep, that was there, and now it's gone. Oh, Cora! It came back. See, if you wait long enough, the train circles back around. It runs on the same track. Um, Cora's rebellion, some were lost. There was judgment poured out. You see the same thing when Moses comes down the mountain with the commandments. Though they were brought out of Egypt, only to do what? Only to perish in the wilderness. If you want more of an explanation on that, read the book of Jude. It's a whole 25 verses, but he talks about that, that there were those who were brought out and then were cut off from the nation. So it has always been about what? Those who are of faith, which is why even in Isaiah chapter 8, the remnant is promised joy and deliverance from God because the remnant are the faithful believers of the nation, the ones who are longing and living for the redemption that God has promised. So with all of that said, now what comes after chapter 8? Chapter 9. See, that was an easy one. Don't overthink it. <laughs> Get your brain stirred. I'm like, um, 6, 7, 8. Ooh, 9. Yes, I know that one. <laughs> Make your life easy. It's okay. All right, that is where we pick up. So before we do anything else, let's read that. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For the ze From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Sorry, I skipped a line there. almost messed us all up. 
All right, what in the world is Isaiah talking about? Because if you're not following closely along, you just went, I think I got some of that, but let's put it in context and let's make sense of it and let's see how we are going both backwards and forwards in God's history. Sound good? All right, verse one. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. What is he talking about? Well, he's reminding of that judgment. Remember what we just talked about. There's going to be an obstinate people. There's going to be judgment of the enemies of Judah, but there is also going to be judgment amongst the people themselves. The remnant will see joy and deliverance. Remember that. What happens if you, as a faithful person, live in a faithless land? Do you experience blessing and good things and they get the judgment? Here and now? Put it another way. Let's just say for the sake of argument that God wanted to send a pestilence on a nation. I'm not saying he did. I'm just, you know, work with me here. And when he sent that pestilence, will none of his people get it? The answer is typically no. That's why I don't look at things and say, ah, there it is. That's the judgment of God. We've had this conversation before. Are tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, you know, all those things, are they the judgment of God? Maybe. I don't know. Be careful because there's two sides to this. There's one side that says, yes, it's the judgment of God. God, he might be doing that. Don't be so quick to say, no, he would never do that because we know from experience in the Old Testament that God does that. Who needs to figure out what's going on in your life? You do. Is he judging you? I hope not. If you are in Christ, then the answer is obviously no. He's purifying. He is refining you. He is doing something other than judging you. But if he brings that same calamity on the unbeliever next door, is he judging them? He might be. He might be. We have to let this be open for how God is dealing with a multitude of people in a multitude of ways to accomplish a multitude of outcomes. He is pruning you. He is purifying your neighbor. He is beginning to send this person to judgment. He is bringing that person to himself by shaking their foundations. He's doing all of these things at the same time. And he's doing them with the same calamity and with the same work. So this is important because when judgment comes upon Judah, were there no faithful people in Judah? Of course there were. If you'd like an example of this, read the book of Daniel. It will do you good. You see Daniel and friends, are they faithful men of Israel? Yes. Did they experience hardship and trial? Yes. Did they stand firm and faithful? Yes. Was that good for them? Yes. Was God shocked by any of that? No. See, you can make sure, you don't, you can make sure you're still following along with me. This is going on even here in Isaiah. Judgment is promised that the remnant will see joy and deliverance. They will be brought through. There will be no more gloom for who for her who was in anguish. God will deliver judgment through, I'm sorry, he will deliver justice through his judgment, but that judgment will not be all-consuming. A good example of this is Deuteronomy 7. Moses telling the people as they're preparing to enter into the promised land, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Catch the distinctions there. Was Israel good? No. Was Israel great? No. 
Was Israel mighty? No. Did Israel deserve the mercy and grace of God? No. Why did he give it? For his glory and his kingdom. He promised to deliver them, therefore he did. Were you good? Were you great? Were you mighty? Did you deserve the gracious mercy of God? No. Why did you receive it? Because he promised that he would deliver a people by the work of Christ, carrying them forward into his kingdom. Not a thing has changed, and that's something we have to remember as we go through this. Israel is not the end-all, be-all. God's kingdom is. The people of Israel rose and fall. Some of them made it, some of them did not. If nothing else, those survey results should scare us because how many people do we think are on the same highway we are when they are traveling through the, uh, the dense forest, traveling in the wrong direction? It's one of the things we need to be warned about and one of the things we need to be careful about, which is why we don't need to say, no, no, God would never judge. Yes, he will. It's one of the hallmarks of our message is that sin is real, it corrupts everyone, and either Christ will have dealt with the punishment or God will bring that punishment upon whom? Me, you, whoever is not repented and put their trust in Christ. It's a hallmark of our message that God judges sin. Isaiah, before he gets to the good news, this is biblical, you always start with the bad news. You have to be brought low so that God can be raised up so that you will then see the great mercy that he provides. So, judgment is coming, but it is not all-consuming because God is dealing with people. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, notice what's going on. Who will be lifted up? Those who were brought low. You see an example of this. Jesus quotes from this in, the, in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Huh, I wonder why. Oh, excuse me. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hmm, I wonder why. This was to fulfill, in case you didn't catch it, Matthew's going to fill in the gaps for you. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. This is why you don't lose your Old Testament when you read your New Testament. If you would like to make sense, why is Jesus there? There's a prophecy. Why is he doing this thing? There is a fulfillment. There is a connection to the promises of God and the work of Christ in fulfilling all of that. It's not an accident that he is going to be born in Bethlehem, be of the tribe of Judah, live in Galilee, go through all of the things. None of this is an accident. None of it. It is connected, and this is why we tell you. This goes back. Why shouldn't the people who attend church once a week, Jesus is the only way of salvation. How many of you agree with that? 96%. Yay! 4%. Ooh. Whoa, 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 what are the 4% reading? Because what other means do we have of lifting people up? I'd love to find just one, because we have Christ. This is replete in both Old and New Testament. You're seeing an example of it here. What is Isaiah pointing to? Is Isaiah pointing to his people now? Partially. But ultimately, he's pointing to what? The work that Christ will do. That's why Jesus 
fulfills this. This is why Matthew quotes it. What is the only way by which Zebulun, Naphtali can be brought low and then raised up? Christ is the only means by which this may occur. James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What's James getting on about? It's a gospel proclamation. He's getting on about repentance. When are you exalted in Christ? Help you out, there's a Bible verse. Our lives are hidden with Christ who is on high, and when he is revealed, our lives will be revealed with him in glory. It's Colossians chapter 3. Our lives are hidden in Christ. We are dead to our trespasses and sins and alive in him. We are brought low in our repentance and our acknowledgement of us being no good at this. We are humbled at the foot of the cross, and then we are raised up in glory with Christ to stand at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because that is where Christ is. And as we are brought low, we are raised with him. Not us, with him. Not because of us, because of him. Luke 5, Jesus taught this. Levi gave a reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. It's one of the few times I argue with my NASB. If you ever read your NASB, and you're reading Luke 5, and that's verse 29, the other people are in italics because it doesn't say other people. It says tax collectors and sinners were with him because it was just obvious if you were a tax collector in Jesus' day, you were by definition a sinner because only evil people would do that job. And what's really being hinted at is tax collectors and prostitutes because that's everybody's time of idea of a good party, right? Hey, we're getting together with Jesus. Bring on the government bureaucrats and prostitutes. Yeah, no, that's not a party. The Pharisees and scribes, because they're all high and mighty, began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Like, you're eating with them? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not called to come, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a simple little example. When do you go to the doctor? When you're sick. How many of you wake up on a you know, random Monday morning and be like, I feel amazing. I'm going to go to the doctor. I've got nothing to do. I want to sit in a waiting room for 27 hours and, you know, and miss my appointment. This, this sounds like a good day. No, no one does this. You go to the doctor when you're sick. Like, do you just call lawyers for the fun of it? Like, I like to spend random Thursday afternoons calling lawyers and getting legal advice. I don't have any problems. I just need legal advice. No, you call a lawyer one. When you have a problem with that requires legal advice, when you have a problem with the law, when do you go before God for forgiveness? When you recognize that you yourself are a sinner. When you have been humbled and brought low, then you seek the help of him who is on high. That's the difference. That was, that's what was being taught. That's what Isaiah is already pointing the people that will reach joy, the people that will see deliverance. That is what he is pointing them to. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. All right, it's time to mess with you. What light? <laughs> what light? Because now we're going to have fun with physics. You ready? Pay attention now because we're going we're gonna to mess with your brains. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said... 
What was the first one? Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, how many of you were imagining this as I read it? When I said, and there was light, what did you picture? You pictured the sun, be honest. The sun came up on one side of the globe, right? All right. That was 1, 1 through 5, Genesis. Now let's read 14 through 19, because that was which day? First day. And we have light, right? We have light and darkness, evening and morning, one day, right? Okay. Verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse in the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day. What do we call that thing? The sun. And the lesser light to govern the night. We call that the moon. And he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Okay, how many of your brains itch? When did we have day and night and the light separated from the darkness? On day one. When did we get sun, moon, and stars? On day four. Do, don't we need sun, moon, and stars to have light? Uh, see, we, you, if you go to a science class in middle school, the answer to that question is yes. If you're in a church on a Sunday morning, the answer to that question is no. And when you're outside of middle school science class, the answer to that question is no. Remember, we carry our biblical worldview, not our scientific worldview. That's the goal. Those people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The light that they see is the work that God is doing in Christ. This is why you have Jesus spoken about the way that he is in the New Testament. This is why you have these connections. This is why you actually have... When we talk about God not doing things for just no good reason, the way in which he created had purpose and teaching behind it. To demonstrate, because you should ask that. How many of you have read Genesis 1 and never asked that question? Like, how did we get light and darkness without a sun and a moon and star? I'm confused. Like, because I'll be honest, I read it like four or five times throughout my life, and I was like, it never, like, I started preaching through it, and I'm going, wait a minute. Now I'm confused. It's there for a reason. God is teaching about himself, the work that he will do, and how it is revealed to later generations. So when Isaiah is pointing to light, he's not, he's not going to be standing up there with a spotlight going, hey, you know, like the lighthouse on the hill shining at the ship, like, hey, guys, come this way. No, he's talking about salvation in Christ, the work of God, and the kingdom that is to be revealed. Now let's take a quick little exit rant because, believe it or not, this is why your work is so important. Oh, see what I did there? Not just about God, but also about how you relate to him. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus teaching the crowds, telling them what? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Just on a practical note, realize how much of a catastrophe in, in that day that would have been. When we're talking about lighting a lamp, what is lighting that lamp? Fire. What is the basket made out of? Typically like straw. What happens if you take fire and you put it under a straw basket? <laughs> now, now you're doing bad 70s disco, right? Fire burning down the house. 
but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. All right, children's song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right. It's not a candle. It, it's, it's not. The light that you shine is not a candle. It is what? It is the glory of God revealed in your good works. By the way, Ephesians chapter 2, who prepared those good works for you? Ephesians 2.10. Uh, uh, eight, eight, nine, and ten. For by grace you've been saved, and not uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, and not of works, so that no one may boast. Um, so that you may walk in the good works that He has prepared for you beforehand. That's Ephesians two ten. See, every once in a while I have them memorized, and every once in a while they start running away. Read your Bibles; it'll do you good, because otherwise you end up like my brain, and you have too much stuff running around, you can't remember anything. The light that you shine is not from you; it originates with. God, it is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is why it becomes so important. The good works are not meant to testify to your goodness. They are meant to testify to God's goodness. They are not meant to show your glory. They are meant to show God's glory. This is what this has always been about, and catch us what this will always be about. Always been and always will be. That's why Isaiah continues. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Who can fulfill this? Who's the only person who can fulfill this work? Jesus is. This is again why John talks about him the way that he does. You ever wonder why there's the connection between John 1 and Genesis 1? It runs through Isaiah 9, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, talking about that Word. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, into come into being, if I could speak English. In him, talking about that word again, was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is important. John is intentionally connecting to that light before the sun in Genesis 1. He is intentionally connecting to that light to be revealed by the work of God in Isaiah 9. He is intentionally connecting to all of these things that have been seen and shown. That's why he continues later on in the chapter. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Catch, even John is making the same distinction that Isaiah is making in chapters 8 and 9. Made mention of this. Judgment is coming, right? The, jo the, the joy and deliverance will be poured out upon the remnant, those who are of faith, who are walking faithfully. What's John pointing to? When Jesus comes into the world, does his light only shine on some people? No, the light shined on all men. When God said, let there be light, was that only on part of his creation? No, it's on all. We, um, simple example of this. A rising tide raises how many boats? All of them. God's mercy and grace is a benefit to all people. All of them. Our light shining is an example of that. Our good works is an example of that. It makes this world better to live in than if we were not here, if believers were not here, if Christian teaching was not here. The world is better because of it. 
but the world is not entirely saved because of it. And that's the distinction John is making, the distinction that Isaiah here is making, is that that light shines for all men, but those who will receive joy, those who will receive the kingdom are those who are born, not of men, not of the will, not of the blood, but of what? Of God. John does. John goes through this again in chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him. And he's, what does Jesus say? You must be born again, born from above. And Nicodemus is all confused because he's like, I've been born once. I don't know how you do that twice. Of course you don't because we're not talking about something that's physical. We're talking about something that is spiritual, a renewal, a rebirth, a changing of heart, mind, and motivations that leads to a change in action. Now, it's all about connections old and new. This idea of God being the light, of Christ shining, Christ redeeming. Proverbs 6, 1 John 1, 2 Peter 3. Just have fun reading your Bible and seeing how God enlightens, God illuminates, and Christ is the one who blesses. Just read your Bible, it will do you good. There you go. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. All right, time out. This is as promised. This is a hearkening back to the promises of God. Genesis 15. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, to him is Abram, by the way, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, he shall be your heir. And God took Abram outside and said, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is the promise going all, back to, all the way back to Abram. From what? From My brain doesn't want to work suddenly. How many nations will receive the blessing promised to Abraham? All of them. Will all the nations flow physically from Abraham? No. Romans chapter 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. I didn't write that. Paul wrote that. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. If you want an example of this in other places, go read Luke 3. This is the warning that John the Baptist gave, because all the people are coming out to him to be baptized, and the Pharisees are coming out, and he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls them a brood of vipers, a pit of snakes. That is not a church growth strategy. People coming to church and, Who warned you snakes to show up? That might be a fireable offense if I did that, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, you know, we had all these people come in, and the pastor all called them evil demons. That's probably not a good start. Hmm. I won't do it, I won't do it, I promise, I promise, I promise. <laughs> Just start meeting people at the door. Good morning, demon. Good morning, serpent. Good morning, snake. <laughs> See, you guys will be like, I get that. The random visitor will be like, you know, this place might be a little bit weird. I don't care how good the coffee is. It might be time to go someplace else. That was John the Baptist's idea. Why? Because what was his warning? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, you claim to be born again. You claim to be walking rightly. How will we know? We'll know by the life you lead. And don't look at me and say, well, of course I'm in. I'm Abraham's descendant. His warning was what? From stones, God can raise up descendants for Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? It's not you just because you share a bloodline. It is you because you share a bloodline in Christ. It is not Abraham's blood that matters. It is the blood of Christ that matters. And that was the, that was the promise given 
that was the promise fulfilled, and that was the thing that Abraham was looking for, that was the thing that the nation was looking for, that was the thing that the kings were supposed to be pointing to, that is the thing that the prophets were supposed to be teaching about. And we'll see that in a minute. So you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in, the, in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they devoid the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So that's verse 3 and 4. Now, easy Christian teaching, right? <clears throat> if I can keep my throat working. Who accomplishes our victory? Jesus. Who grants us peace? Jesus. Who grants us joy? Who accomplishes all of these good things? Hold on one second, guys. Sorry about that. Somebody's got to keep my daughter in line. I guess it's got to be your father. <laughs> the nerve of some people. Uh, who other than Christ could possibly accomplish that? See, that's you're going, I can't think of anybody. That's good. Go with that. Don't be the 4 or the 10% in the survey, but be the, the 90%. That's the right answer. This is what Christ fulfills. Mark chapter 3. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, this is a this is a song. If you if you ever if you were raised in the wrong uh, old school Southern church, and I, I have had the I don't know if it's a joy to be able to part of this, but for years uh, a church I was a member of, we sang the same song at the end of every service, the same one. Any guess what it is? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by the blood. Joint heirs of Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. I know that because we sang it every week. And that really, it's annoying because it's not, a, it's a good song. That's good theology. It just, it wears on you when you hear the same song every Every just one Sunday, please one Sunday, one Sunday. Just anyway, the only time we get him to stop doing it was at Christmas time. We did instead of singing that, we sang "Go Tell It on the Mountain." So for like four weeks a year, I got a break. <laughs> but what's the point of that? See, we have an old phrase: "What's thicker than water?" Blood. Why? Because I can war with my siblings and my family to the death. But what happens if you do that? <laughs> see, see, no, no, see that. Then we got to fight, right? Like, I can say that to them, you cannot. You can't, no, I can do that to them, you cannot. Because what? That, that those are my people. In Christ, those who believe, those who walk the walk, they are my people. They are my family. That's why Christ talks about dividing sons from parents and spouses and siblings. Because the dividing line is not how you grew up, it's who you follow after. And that's part of what's being taught here, is where is our peace? It's in Christ. Where is our joy? It's in Christ. Where is our victory? It's in Christ. If that is true, why would I look for security and community anywhere else? And see, that's a really good question, because what do we do? We look for our security. We look for our community. We look for our peace anywhere else. We fail to remember that it is in Christ and his people 
that we are safe and secure and moving in the right direction. That's the thing that breaks us. Our connections are supposed to be bound in the blood of the Savior, which nothing can sever. Not which few things can sever, which nothing can sever. So Isaiah continues, verse 5. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for the will be for burning fuel for the fire. See, all of those who stand against Christ, what will their fate be? Revelation chapter 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You're wondering about the guy sitting on the horse. That's uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. That's the, uh, it's the Handel's Messiah description. If you don't know what about that, though, that's the sash and the sword and the flaming eyes of fire and king of kings and lord of lords stuff. You don't know what I'm talking about. See, this one I need Cameron here because I have a sick child. So, and, and, because yeah, my, my wife being the soprano loves singing that because it's king of kings and I can't even come close to hitting that note. So, yeah, but anyway, go look up Handel's Messiah, the hallelujah part. It'll do you good. You'll enjoy it. So they're all assembled. The beast, so this is the battle, right? This is, this is the great battle of Armageddon. We are all lined up. It's the side of Jesus and his armies, and it's the side of Satan and his armies, and they're all lined up, and this is the big fight scene, right? If you were going to write a chapter of the Bible with all the detail in the world, it would be what chapter? Like, if you could write one, which, which chapter would you want to see? I want to see that one. I want to see how that fight goes down. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, and by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's two verses! That's the whole battle! We're done here! Is they're all assembled, and Jesus is like, yeah, take that general and throw him in the fire, and take that prophet and throw him in the fire. All right, we're done here. All right, kill everybody else. We're good. I'm going to go have coffee. <laughs> That's it. We're done! There's, there's no fight. There's nothing. It's just, it's over. Where is our victory? It's in Christ. Where is our security? It's in Christ. How do I know that? Because that's the power. It's just there. Like, could you imagine, if you talk about feeling useless, like you're assembled for battle and you're like, oh, we're done here. Well, can I go get coffee too? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've got nothing else to do. Why? Because that's the line of demarcation. That's what separates the us from the them. Not who our parents were, not where we lived, not what language we spoke, but what Savior we followed. And those who are his are the exact opposite. If you fast forward to Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is among men. He will live among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. See, my pages are sticking together. That's what was lost in the garden. It wasn't just, oh, suddenly sin is here and we're all messed up. It's sin is here, we're all messed up, and we don't have God any longer. He's gone. And not that he's gone as in he's not here anymore, he's gone to bless. We only have his wrath against sin being poured out. That's what the flood was about. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah is about. That's what the judgments in the desert for the Israelites were about. It's a reminder that, hey, dun, 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 sin is real and judgment is coming, but in Christ we have that light shining. We have the grace and the mercy of God poured out. We have a deliverance from wrath. We have the ability in the midst of suffering, in the midst of despair, to walk 
faithfully and to walk with our heads held high, knowing that we are God's and that we are secure in him. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, catch that. That may not flow if you don't know your Old Testament, because Isaiah is promising deliverance and joy and security in God. How does a child deliver that? Like, I've met children. How many of them would you trust to be in charge? (laughs) You're like, no, no. But in Bible history, isn't this what we've been waiting for? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What was Eve told? I will put enmity between, I'm sorry, this is the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I know Matt's, um, Matt's listening because he's paying attention because he came in here to grab his kids when I busted mine. But um, <laughs> this, is, this is Matt's favorite one because he remembers this one. This is what we call the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel, big fancy way of saying first gospel. In the garden, in the midst of sin, God is telling the serpent that you're going to be undone. Who's the serpent again? Satan. What is his offspring? Evil, sin. All the works of Satan are his offspring. How will they be crushed? They will be crushed by a son born to the woman who will crush you. You'll bruise him but he will crush you. This is why you have the fulfillment that you have at the cross, is you have a sacrifice, you have a bruising of the son, but a crushing of evil. Now, when you know that, suddenly a child being born to us is kind of a big deal, right? A son, that's an even bigger deal because this is, this is what we've been looking for. If you continue on reading, like read the stuff everybody skips in their Bible, so... If you want some homework for the week and you want to see the hope of the nations, Genesis 1 through 5 will point you in that direction. Because you got Genesis 1, creation, everything finishes up and it is, at the end of Genesis 1, how, what's the one word God uses to describe everything? It is good. Genesis 2, we get the expanded details. So what happens at the end of Genesis 1, male and female, he created them in his image. You get the details of what that looks like in Genesis 2, and you have Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, yeah. Everything goes from good to, yeah, bad. Sin comes in, but you've got the promise here. Don't miss that promise. Genesis 4, Adam and Eve are celebrating because what's been born? A son. Is this the son? What was his name? Cain. Was he the son? No. Why do they celebrate at the end of the chapter, though? Because Cain is cast off because he kills Abel, but what happens at the end of the chapter? Seth is born. We celebrate because we've now got a son. Could the, it's not just because boys are awesome. I, I'm raising one. They're not always awesome. Um, it's because it's not that it's a son. Is It might be the son. And then you get to the end of chapter 4, and you have the punchline, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then you have that genealogy that everybody skips. Go home and read the genealogy of Genesis 5. It's good for you. It comes down to the end of this. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And you'll see that throughout. Now, he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The hope in Noah, whose name literally means rest, is at some point, one of these sons is going to be the son. 
And while Noah may get through the tribulation of the flood, is he the son? No. So when Isaiah is promising a kingdom, and he is promising a righteousness, and he is promising a joy to those who are facing judgment, what is he now saying? A child will be born to us, a son will be given. I haven't forgotten that God has promised those things. And you know who else hasn't forgotten that he's promised those things? God hasn't. And Isaiah is proving it. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, that just escalated very quickly. Did I just get an echo? How do you do that? <laughs> Try that again. Hey, there we go. That was weird. Did I? Am I the only person who heard that echo, or is that is that just a figment of my imagination? Okay, you heard it too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I tell people all the time, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most, but I'd like to not lose it completely. Now, this is important. This escalated because not only are we looking for that son, who will that son be? Just based on that. Who, who qualifies for this job description? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Jesus, because he's got to be who? Go, what's the title? Not the name, the title. Not just son of God. God with us. He is God. He's, he's got to be. In order to be the wonderful counselor, to be the mighty God. What is, what is that? Um, Lou, help me. Is that El Gabor? El Gabor, right? Yeah. God Almighty, the eternal Father. What's eternal mean? See, but in which direction? See, that's the, there's a difference between eternal and forever. Forever implies what? From here moving where? Forward. Eternal implies from here moving forward and backward. Are you eternal? No. See, we, that's, why we talk, that's why we're careful. We talk about an immortal soul, not an eternal soul. Because an eternal soul would have always existed. It did not. An immortal soul is one that will not perish, will not be cast aside. Only God is eternal, without end and without beginning. This child, this son, will be the eternal father. He will be Yahweh in the flesh. And that is why he will be the one who brings about peace. Now, by the way, not new in your Old Testament. This is what has been pointed to. Psalm chapter 40. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. I said, behold, I come in the scroll. I, I, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Where was the trust of the psalmist? In the work that God would do. What's Isaiah pointing the people to? To their sacrifices? No. To their kingdom? No. To the God who will redeem them. You see the same thing, Habakkuk 2? Behold, the, the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The righteous will live by faith. Psalm 51. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. See, the law was never the means of salvation. 
It was a demonstration of how you live with a holy God. The salvation of the Old Testament is the same as the salvation of the New Testament. A humble people recognizing their sin, crying out and trusting in God for salvation that he has promised he will bring. Promises it in the beginning, delivers it in Christ, and calls us to it even now. New Testament is demonstrating this as it continues on. Hebrews chapter 9. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So in other words, if we can kill an animal and God will accept that, how much more will he accept Christ? And see, this is also explaining why the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but only Christ can. Bulls and goats eternal? Feels like it when you're dealing with them some days, but they are not. Does that sacrifice cover all the way back and all the way forward? Can they die in eternal death? No. Can God in flesh? Yes. This is why people ask, well, how can Jesus be on the cross for three hours and that satisfies the wrath of God? Because of who he is. Not because of what he did, but because of who he is. The eternal one put on flesh and died for our trespasses and sins. That is why we are clean now and forevermore. That is the hope of all the people in the Old Testament. That is the longing of the nations, and that is the continued hope of the people of God, that while we stand firm upon him now, we look around in a world that is not living in accordance with his dictates. It is not living according to what he has prescribed. And we long for that. So we do what? We shine our light, because the light that is in us is not a light of men, but a light of God. But we know that the hope of that final culmination is where? Is it here? No. It's only here when God's kingdom comes down, when sin is cast away, when Satan and the prophet are sent aside, and when God's kingdom is fully inaugurated. Hence verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his, of his government or of peace. That's an easy one. Why will that never stop? Who, who wins the fight against God again? No one. Now, if Christ is the son, the one born, who will have the government and will bring, bring an increase of government, who will win the war against him? No one. Psalm chapter 2. The nations are mocking God. They're trying to cast him aside. What does God say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury and say, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. All the way back in Psalm 2, God's going, You can't win. The king is ordained. The king has been chosen. He will be seated upon the throne, and his victory will be secure. That's why when you fast forward to the end, you get to Revelation 21, you see what? When John is looking at the, the new city, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Harkening back again to Genesis 1. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, 
its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, why is that city secure? Because God dwells within it. Why is that kingdom secure? Because God is the one who has established it. So verse 7 continues, On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Um, as promised. Is it an accident that David's name is thrown in there? Like, why do we need to go back to David? Was David, one, David first king of Israel, right? See who's paying attention. Who, who knows your Bible history? David, first king of Israel, right? No, who's first king of Israel? Saul. So why do we go back to David? 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are complete, this was to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's got a dual fulfillment. That's got a fulfillment in Solomon, because what did Solomon do? What did Solomon build? What is he known for? Solomon built a temple, which was supposed to be the house of who? House of God. But does Solomon rule forever? Like, where's his throne? He doesn't, he doesn't have one. Does Jesus establish a house for God? Yes. Where? We covered this last week if you were paying attention. Where does Jesus establish a house for God? Anybody got a mirror handy? In you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the Father who ordains and the Father who rules, Christ who accomplishes and the Spirit who uplifts and indwells. This is why the indwelling of the Spirit is so important for the believer. This is why sanctification happens. is because you walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand because the Holy Spirit is there kicking your ear in the whole way down the highway to make sure you stay there. <sighs> i got to breathe and breathe deeper on those big sentences. You are there. The temple of God was never meant to just be a physical place off someplace it was meant to be with the people of god this is again why that city at the end of revelation is so important god will dwell with his people because is he doing that now yes but is he doing it in a way that illuminates the whole world sort of a trick question because who's supposed to be illuminating the world we are because again how do we shine the light but finally what is coming is a kingdom where we don't have to illuminate because it will just be what done it will be accomplished so this is as promised why because the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this if god promises who will fulfill god will is there a doubt on this no this is why you can trace through the light of genesis 1 the promise of a son the hope of the nations looking towards what looking towards a fulfillment in god looking towards a child who will be born, who will crush sin, usher in the kingdom, and bring God's people back unto himself. That's why our first gospel starts with what? Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Who is this Messiah, you may ask? He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Pointing you back to what? The king who will rule and the one who will bring in the nations. And that's why when you get to the end, what's Jesus' parting words? Revelation 22. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let all the ones who hear say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. See, that's the hope. Not just because we are on this side of the crucifixion, but because we are of the people of God. Peace security and salvation have always been found in Christ and Christ alone. The nations before him longed for that fulfillment. That's what the candle's supposed to represent. It's hope. Hope hasn't gone away. We like to dim it a whole lot, but only because our vision has been brought too low. When we remember the work that Christ will accomplish, when we remember the kingdom that will be ushered in, we can be reminded that there is a hope that no matter what may befall us here and now, judgment will not be all-consuming, that his people will persevere, that we will get to the end, and that the light which dwells in us will shine brightly unto his kingdom. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the promises that you have given and the work that you have accomplished. We thank you for the hope that you provide because it is only in you that we have hope. We thank you for the security that you provide because it is only in you that we have security. And we thank you for the peace that you provide us because it is only in you that we have true peace. Lord, strengthen us. Let us not be downtrodden by this world. Let us not forsake the hope of your kingdom, knowing that your gracious mercy will carry us through, knowing that your kingdom will be good and that your reign will be forever. Lord, hasten to that day and carry us to completion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. He is exalted. The King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted forever. Exalted and I will praise His name. He is the Lord, forever is true, shall reign. Heaven and earth, rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise him, he is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise his name. He is the Lord, forever his truth shall reign. Heaven and earth, rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise him, he is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise his name. He is the Lord, forever his truth shall reign. Heaven and earth, rejoice in his holy name. 
He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. Uh, quick reminders, just remember everybody who's sick, it's again that time of year, stuff's going around, so be careful. Drink your juice, get some sunshine when you have it available, wash your hands, and, you know, avoid everybody like who's sick like they have the plague, because they might this year. They just might have the plague, so there you go. All right, try to stay safe and remember everybody, and hopefully we'll all get back to good health sooner than later. Let's pray. Again, Lord, as we leave this place, guard us, keep us safe and secure in you, that we would do the works that shine your light, that this world would see your glory and turn to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.